Everybody can hear me now. There it goes. I can hear it. I want to thank everybody that showed up yesterday for the for the trunk or treat. Uh, it was a it was a great time that was had by all, and so hopefully you've seen some of the pictures on the on Facebook. And there's a lot of a lot of great displays, a lot of good times had, a lot of laughs, and so I uh, look forward to next year's. And uh, so hopefully we can have more of us that can participate. I know we have some of our families that are out of town, and sometimes sports gets in the way this time of year. But it was a wonderful time yesterday. And just want to thank everybody that participated and all those who volunteered to help make that a success. And I want to just uh, thank uh, and, uh, any of our visitors that we have that are visiting with us today here at Lincoln Park. We want to just let you know that you're our honored guest. And if there's anything that we could do for you, if there's any questions that we could answer for you, please allow us uh, that opportunity at the conclusion of the service. If you look on the screen behind me, the, the, it says, To live is Christ. To live is Christ, and it means that we are to trust and obey. As we get into this lesson here this morning, it's going to be kind of a follow-up from uh, Brother uh, Pat Danz's lesson from Wednesday night. Uh, on Wednesday night, uh, we, uh, Pat spoke a lot about uh, Psalm 91, uh, you know, and then as we looked at Psalm 91 and really what that means, it's, the theme of Psalm 91 is God's protective care. It's God's protective care for the one who is committed to him. And that is the key to understanding God's protective care in a nutshell, and that's, his, uh, that's, his, uh, that, that's the, the, the best way to understand it is to those who are faithful. That's why we sing the song, Trust and Obey. That's why it says, to live is Christ. To live is Christ simply means that Christ should encompass everything that we do. It should encompass everything that we are, who we are, and who we show ourselves to be to the world. And so when we think of God's protective care and how we could come into to being in that care, how we could uh, be uh, those who are, reside in his shelter, reside in his kingdom. Brethren, we need to understand that uh, trusting and obey is absolutely crucial. When we think of Psalm 91, it is probably the, the one verse or, or the, that one chapter in Scripture that is completely clear uh, of what's expected of us. It's, it's forcefully and clearly expressed exactly what is, uh, what is commanded of us. And when we think about it, it's clear that the promise of protective care is conditional. You guys will often hear me talk about things that are conditional when it comes unto the Lord. It's conditional because it requires our full commitment to God. When we think about this idea of a full commitment to God, are you all in? In all aspects of your life, are you all in? Or are there still areas of your life that you exclude God? Are there, are there areas of your thought processes that you exclude God? Are there areas of your inter entertainment choices that you exclude God? You see, we need to make sure that when we want to come into the protective care of God and that we expect uh, and that we want his love, his grace and mercy and all that he has to offer, he first gives it to those who are faithful. And when we think about this, it makes me think of Hebrews chapter uh, 11. When we get to Hebrews chapter uh, 11... I must not have that one on the screen, but in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us in verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who sincerely, those who faithfully, those who strongly seek him out. So and to, un to understand that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You guys hear me say it all the time. Faith is belief, trust, and obedience. And that's why, as I said, we sing the song, Trust and Obey. That's why the theme of Psalm 91 is God's protective care are, are, is unto those who are committed to him. 
When we think about us as Christians in the 21st century, does Jesus have expectations for his people? Does he have expectations for his disciples? Does he have expectations for the church, the body of Christ as a whole? If we are truly to live for Christ, we must know what he expects. I've often asked Christians who, who claim to be Christians but don't really understand really much of what the Bible teaches, I say, how do you think it's going to go for you when you stand before God in judgments and you're judged based on your life that you lived according to the word? How, how, can you, how can you stand confidently before God in judgment if you don't even know what you're going to be judged on? So how important then is it for us to study to show ourselves approved? And we'll look at that here in a moment and see what scripture has to say. So brethren, we need to understand that Jesus has expectations for his disciples, for those who take upon his name and call themselves Christians. And the first thing that we need to know is that we have to know his word. We know his word, we follow his word, and we proclaim his word. As Christians, that is our, that is our sole reason for being, to, to know, to follow, and to proclaim. So let's get started with knowing the word of God here this morning. When we think of knowing the word of God, why is it in your mind, you don't have to audibly answer it, but why is it that you think that Jesus oftentimes called the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, right, the, the lawyers. Uh, why do you think he often called them hypocrites? Is it because they didn't fully know and or understand his word? And the answer would be yes. You see, because also, too, not only did they know his word, but they thought to themselves, you know what, God tells me that if I live faithfully unto his word and do these things that he requires of me, I will be thought of as faithful and righteous in his eyes. But I bet you... If I force all these other people who follow him as the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, if I force all these additional rules onto them, man, we must be, we're, we're going to look really religious in his eyes. We're going to seem really righteous in his eyes. How often did the Jews, the standard everyday Jew, consider their leadership to be holy and righteous? Walking with God, and yet when God shows up on the scene, when Jesus puts on flesh and takes and becomes man and walks amongst us, he's constantly calling them hypocrites. Why? Because they constantly set aside the law of God in order to keep their own traditions. And so as we start to break down the knowing of God's word, God expected the Jews of the Old Testament to know exactly his teachings. Why? Because they were to be the experts of the law. And so following two conflicts that we learn about in Matthew chapter 12, and we're not going to read about this in detail, but if you remember back in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' disciples, they're walking with Jesus through the grain fields, and they're hungry, and it's the Sabbath day, and they start plucking the heads of the, of the grain. And what are they doing as they're walking along, plucking the heads of the grain? They start to eat them. Why? Because they're hungry. And then there's the, if you read on, if you can continue on there in Matthew chapter 12, there's also the rebuke of Jesus for his disciples, uh, and, uh, well, for Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And so when you look at both examples in Matthew chapter 12, there's the illustration that Jesus' yoke is easy. And what I mean by Jesus' yoke is easy, and what scripture means is that God has given us his commands for the betterment of our lives. There's nothing that God requires of you that isn't for your benefit. 
And yet, everything that the Jews often required, uh, as far as the, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the scribes, many of those, uh, the Talmud and the Mishnah, those uh, Jewish traditions, were actually not for the betterment of the people. It was to lay a heavier burden on the people than even God was willing to lay upon them. And so, those, uh, we know that Jesus is the one who supplies the weary and the burdened with rest. That's what the scripture teaches us. And he's challenging the Pharisaical legal system because he's telling them that when they start to question of him in Matthew chapter 12, he's basically saying that because of your Pharisaical legal system, your traditions that you force upon the people, that you're making the day of rest, meaning the Sabbath, you're turning it into a burden. Something that it was never intended to be. It was meant to be a day of rest for the people. And so you nullify the, you're nullifying the original intention of the law, of the Sabbath, in order to keep your own uh, traditions and rules. And so in Matthew 12 and 1 through 14, as Jesus is questioned uh, about his disciples not, keep, not keeping the Sabbath, notice uh, some of this in, uh, in verses 1 through 8. If you had your Bibles open, and we're not going to read through it specifically, but in verses 1 through 8, it starts to talk about the plucking of the head of grain. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their lack of understanding, and he rebukes them for their lack of discernment. You see, these are supposed to be the experts of the law. And Jesus tells them there in that first section of uh, Matthew chapter 12, he says, haven't you read? Think about Jesus, right, saying to these religious leaders, haven't you read? What is that, what, it, what in, essentially is Jesus uh, doing to them? There's, a, there's, a, there's an attitude of a little bit of sarcasm. There's an element of sarcasm there. Haven't you read? Well, they're supposed to be the experts, so they should have read. And he says, and if you read, how is it that you don't understand? And if you understand, how come it that you don't discern? And so Jesus addresses those who pride in themselves to be experts, and yet, in a way, he's kind of mocking them. Jesus says with respect to David there, he says, you know, you guys remember David? When David was, uh, was fleeing from, uh, from uh, uh, King Saul, he was fleeing for his life. Saul was trying to kill him at around every corner. And he says, if you go back and you study out the Old Testament, David's actions and his men technically must have been a violation of the law. Because the law is clear that in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 9, that only the priest was allowed to eat the showbread. The bread that was, that was set out in the presence of the Lord. It was only for the priests. But he says, haven't you read what David and his men did when they were hungry? That they were, they were fleeing and that they came into the, uh, into the area and they ate the bread that was only lawful for the priests to eat? He says, well, technically, he, they probably should have been found guilty. They probably should have been found uh, con condemned, in a sense, for this violation to the letter of the law. But the answer here is really simple. When Jesus says, haven't you read? Don't you understand? He says the same reasons that legitimized David's actions and the reason why he wasn't uh, condemned uh, or found in violation of the law is because David's actions also justify what Jesus' disciples were doing because of the special circumstances. When Jesus or when David was fleeing from, uh, from Saul and from those who were trying to kill him, and him and his men are, are, are just running all over the place. 
fleeing for their lives. It's not that they couldn't have taken out Saul. It's not that they didn't have opportunity to take out Saul. They had opportunity, but he refused to kill God's chosen, his anointed one. But yet, who was David in this circumstance? Wasn't David uh, 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 anointed by Samuel? So who's now the new anointed king? It's David. So because of the circumstances, he was justified, he and his men, for eating the showbread because of the predicament that he was in. That he's, not, he's choosing not to kill Saul, God's anointed, knowing who he is, and he's not going to lift a finger against God's anointed, but knowing that he's the coming. He's the next in line. And so Saul, being evil at this point, God's Holy Spirit leaving him, is trying to kill him. So he was justified because of his predicament as well as who he was, meaning the next in line, the anointed king of God. And so his technical breach of the law must be seen in light of broader circumstances. And so many times, that's why we have to understand for the greater good, meaning the preservation of David and his line, how important was David to the line and to the preservation of the line, the kingdom, and to the seed line? Right? How important was that? So the letter of the law cannot always be rigidly enforced when it came to some of those things. Not only must discernment of God's will take into consideration sometimes higher priorities? The law of God cannot be interpreted in isolation. That's why we look at the whole of the law of God and not just any one verse. If one can justify David's actions in light of the special circumstances, in light of him being the anointed king, how much more uh, justified are the actions of Jesus, who is Jesus, who is king, who is prophet, who is high priest, who is God. How much more are Jesus' disciples justified in the light of the end time circumstances that surround Jesus and who he is and what his sacrifice means for mankind? You see, brethren, as we continue on here, Jesus directly, he appeals directly to the priestly rites of the offering of sacrifices on the Sabbath. He says, Jesus tells him, he says, such practice as the priests who are offering sacrifices on the Sabbath would technically be viewed as a violation uh, of the prohibition of the work on the Sabbath that you have actually uh, had, that you had furthered um, these teachings on. Yet the fulfillment of the priestly duties demands offer, offerings of sacrifices on the Sabbath. And those sacrifices take precedence over obedience to the Sabbath law. We know this because that's what it teaches in Numbers chapter 28 and verses 9. That the sacrifices of the priests take precedence over the, the, the keeping of the Sabbath law. Therefore, since the priests are performing their God-assigned task and they're justified as innocent... Jesus makes the startling claim in Matthew chapter 12 that his disciples are justified in their actions because they are associated with something or someone greater than the temple. For them to say that something or someone greater than the temple is here and their actions are justified, that would have been, that would have been like them just trying to pull a spear out of their chest. They would have been so enraged so angry that he had the gall to say that somebody or something is, is here is greater than the temple. Brethren, what God was doing in Jesus far surpasses what the priests were doing in worship unto God in the temple. And so it follows that the Pharisaic criticism of Jesus, it was unjustified in Matthew chapter 12. Because their association with Jesus, they are involved in a sacrificial service. 
The sacrificial service that transcends anything connected to temple worship. Understanding who Jesus was, understanding why he was here, and understanding the sacrifice that he's going to make, that means that his disciples were justified in their actions. So brethren, we also know that God expected the Jews to know and to keep his word, and likewise Jesus expects Christians, his disciples, to also know and keep his word. When we look at this first passage of scripture on the screen behind me, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, it says, Be diligent to present yourself as approved to God, as a workman uh, who does not need to be ashamed, but accurately handles the word of truth. You see, brethren, God expects Christians, disciples, to know the word. Just like God expected the Jews of old to know the word, to be faithful and true, to keep it, to trust and obey. And so the same thing is here for Christians in the Christian era. We start out on the milk of the word. Isn't that what scripture teaches? And over time, we, we transition from the milk as an infant in Christ. We transition to the meat of the word as we start to grow and mature in our faith. And then we transition to not just the meat of the word, but to the cooking of the meat. And what is the idea behind the cooking of the meat? It's the idea of then feeding that word to others. Listen to what this next passage of scripture has to say in Hebrews chapter 5. When you look on the screen behind me, notice what the author of Hebrews has to say in chapter 5 and verse 12 through 14. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. Remember, there's the infant milk, there's the solid food, and then there's the cooking of the food so you can teach it, prepare it, meaning serve it to others. And so he says, by this time, you ought to be serving the food, the bread of life. You ought to be serving the word of God to others. He says, but you have need again for someone to teach you the most elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness because he's still an infant in Christ. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Brethren, you look at this passage of scripture. If, Christian, if, Christians, if a Christian stays on the infant, the milk of the word, and we don't have our senses trained in the word of God, how are we ever going to be able to distinguish between good and evil? You guys have heard me say, and you've heard uh, Brother uh, Billy Graham Jr. on TV say, what used to be wrong is now right, and what used to be right is now wrong. You look, we live in an upside-down world. We live in a world where we're now God's standard, his moral standard, is no longer followed. So if we don't have our senses trained to, to recognize the word of God, to recognize his moral standards, to understand righteousness, how can we ever determine and discern between good and evil? How can we ever discern between righteousness and sin? And that is why the parable of, uh, of this, uh, the parable of the two foundations is so important. Look on the screen behind me. You think about Matthew chapter 7. You think of 24 through 27. And we see the, the parable of the two foundations. It says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be, be compared to a wise man who did what? He built his house on the rock. He built his house on the foundation of Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. It says the rains fell, the flood came, the wind blew, they slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. It had been founded on Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And then it says in verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and yet does not keep them, he's like a foolish man 
The foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew. They slammed against his house, and, 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 and as it fell, and great was its fall. Brethren, you look at Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount with a challenge to not, only, to not be hearers only of the word, but to be actually doers of the word. What good is it if you have the knowledge that can change your eternal destiny and you don't act on it? That's like having the Michigan's Powerball, the $800 million, $800 million lottery ticket, and you decide, eh, I'm just going to throw it away. What good, is the winning, what good is having the winning ticket if you don't follow through by cashing it in? It's the same mindset as what good is having knowledge of the Word of God if you don't actually apply the Word of God. So Jesus, as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, he says you need to not only be hearers, but doers of the Word. And so it does you no good to hear the Word if you don't apply the Word. Brethren, likewise, Jesus, is, Jesus believing in Christ isn't enough. Just, just believing in Jesus Christ isn't enough. You have to trust and obey. And that goes back to Psalm 91, talking about that there's a conditional phrase in Psalm 91. You can't enter into God's uh, uh, his, his protective care unless you're willing to fully commit unto God. Unless you're fully committing unto serving God. As a, as, as a faithful servant. That's why Paul starts out many of his letters. Peter does it. Uh, Mary did it in Bible class this morning. I am the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be unto me as you have spoken. I, Paul, I, Peter, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And then they start out, their, they start out the letter. They're saying that because they know that they are full, in full service unto God. We also need to think of Matthew chapter 25 for a moment before I close this down. Because... In Matthew 25, we notice that God prepares us for judgment. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 25, we first learn of the parable of the virgins, do we not? In verses 1 through 13, what does it teach us? The parable of the virgins teaches us to be prepared. Be prepared for what? To be prepared for the judgment. Because what's going to happen in the judgment? We're going to stand before God and give an account of our lives, whether good or bad, whether you were faithful or disobedient. So, brethren, each time Jesus rebuked, each time when you go back and you study it out, after Jesus' baptism, he comes up out of the water, and it says immediately he was led away by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. For what? With the express purpose to be tempted. And every time he was tempted by the devil, Jesus used the sword of the Spirit to defeat the attacks of the evil one, to send the, the evil one away. And we too, brethren, need to use the word of, uh, word of God to defeat the attacks of society, to defeat the attacks of evil, of sinfulness, of, this, of the evil one, of Satan. We need to be prepared, brethren, for the great and glorious return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And being prepared is kind of like the parable of the ten virgins that took the extra oil, that went the extra mile, that did everything they could to be prepared for when the bridegroom was going to return. We need to recognize the, re and the reality of Satan as well as the danger of Satan. We need to realize uh, that we are not invincible. And that we are only invincible if we put on the full armor of God. Then we can command the devil to depart from me, and he has to listen. 
Because we know we fall under God's protective care if we do all that is required of us, as Psalm 91 teaches. We need to pray without ceasing. We need to study to show ourselves approved. We need to get involved in the seeking and the saving of the lost. And you only do that if you transition from the milk of the word to the meat of the word to the cooking of the word so you can then serve the bread of life unto man. And brethren, so that's why there's a spiritual process that takes place in your faith. We need to find a mentor. If you're still on the infant milk of the word, you need to find a mentor or a spiritual role model. Somebody that can help guide you in the word. Somebody that can help guide you in life and in this transition that you're making out of worldliness and into righteousness. We need to make sure, brethren, that we're consistently and constantly encouraging others and edifying others by teaching them. And we need to make sure that we stop forsaking the worship assembly and, our, and, and fellowship opportunities. Brethren, in Matthew 25, what, do, what else do we learn? Besides the parable of the virgins, it goes on to the parable of the talents, does it not? What do we learn about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? It teaches us to use what we have been given. How many of us just make excuses about why we can't use the talents instead of just using the talents God has given us for the betterment of the kingdom? Stop making excuses of what you can't do and start doing what you can do. And then use the idea of gaining a, a spiritual mentor. Use the idea of gaining somebody that can help you to, to grow in your, in your faith and in your relationship with the Lord. Use that as an opportunity to further uh, build upon your talents, to practice, to build yourself up. How is it that most people that have talent of some sorts, whether it be in the arts, whether it be in music, whether it be in, in sports, whether it be in preaching, whether it be whatever the case may be, they literally have to practice their, their trade. They have to continuously be, be doing things to hone their skills for the, for the purpose of being better, getting better, so they don't have to make the excuses of why they're not doing what they should. Brethren, we have to understand that we this uh, Matthew 25 you have the parable of the virgins, you have the parable of the talents, and it's followed up by the parable of the final judgment scene. And as we get to Matthew 25, 31 through 46, it teaches us to be mindful of the needs of others. How do I know that? Because Jesus, he tells us right in there, you seen me naked and you clothed me. You seen me hungry and you fed me. You seen me thirsty, you gave me something to drink. You seen me sick and you visited me. And they're like, Lord, when do we see you do these things? And Jesus simply tells them, to the, to the fact that you've seen any brother of mine, no, no matter who they were, and you did these things unto them, it's as if you did it unto me, paraphrasing. And so, brethren, when you've seen other brothers and sisters in Christ, when you've seen other people hungry, thirsty, naked, destitute, in prison, or, or sick, that you went and you looked to care for them. Jesus says, every time you do it for somebody else, it's as if you do it for me. But when you don't do it for others, it's, it's, it's as if you are rejecting me yourself. And so this last part of Matthew 25 and 31 through 46 is talking about the judgment. It teaches us that it's better to give than receive. It teaches us that we must help to bear one another's burdens. And it tells us in Galatians 6 and 2, when you help to bear each other's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. Why? Because it's as if you're doing it to Christ himself. We're to go the extra mile. We're to have the agape type of love. Remember, brethren, Peter tells us that God's word contains everything that we need for eternal life. It is literally the blueprint 
for a modern day terminology. It is the blueprint of how to attain heaven. But the blueprint is useless. It's useless if you and I, as the builders, don't follow the blueprint. If we don't build our temple, so to speak, according to code. Whose code? God's code. What happens if I start to have a building project in Huron Township where I live and I don't get the required permits, I don't follow code, and then, a, then, a bill, then an inspector shows up out of the blue, what's going to happen? He's going to shut me down. Why? Because I'm not, I didn't pull the right permits, I'm not doing it to code. What do you think is going to happen when you stand before God in judgment and you haven't built your temple according to God's code? Brethren, you will be found in violation and you will not be welcomed in to his, to his eternal paradise. As I close this lesson down, I lastly want to say something quickly just on the idea that we are to know God, we are to follow God, and we are to proclaim God. Jesus and the apostles didn't just drop off a note, did they? They didn't shoot a quick, a quick text and get out of here. How often of us, how often do we think, well, I sent somebody a text message, that's got to be good enough. No, there has to be, you have to physically get involved. You've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to have a little blood, sweat, and tears in this fight. How do I know that? Because in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, it says Jesus was going through all of the cities, all of the villages doing what? He was teaching in their synagogues. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. That's important because Jesus was going anywhere and everywhere doing the commission that God had given him, fulfilling the commission that God had given him, even though he knew the Jews hated him. Many of the Jews wanted to kill him. They were looking for opportunities. And yet, where did he go? Village after village after village, he went to the Jews. He went to the local synagogue. Brethren, everywhere Jesus went, he used it as an opportunity to, to fulfill the commission that the Father, God the Father, has given him. It didn't matter if it was in the synagogue. It didn't matter if it was in someone's house. It didn't matter if he was on the bank of the sea. It didn't matter if he was walking down the road. Jesus constantly did the work that the Father had given him to do. So, brethren, I ask you as I close this down, please make it your life mission to know what's expected of you. Please make it your life's mission to follow the word of God as written, not as man states, but as written in holy writ. And please be willing to proclaim the word of God, to, to go from the infant milk to the word to the meat of the word to the actual cooking of the meat so then you could deliver it yourself and feed others brethren we need to know follow and proclaim if you do this as we learned on wednesday night in psalm 91 we will find shelter in the lord we will find protection in the lord because we are doing all that the lord requires of us if you do that, you fear not. You need to fear not judgment because you will stand before God and you'll be welcomed with the crown of life. Brethren, if you're here today and you're hearing this message and you know that you're falling short in one way or another, it need not be that way. You could ask for help. You could seek out help. And I'm here to tell you that the elders of this congregation, the deacons, uh, myself, and all the men and the women of this congregation will help you. We are a family here at Lincoln Park. We talk about this all the time. We are to fellowship constantly together. Why? For the encouragement of, uh, of one another. It's for the edification of one another. For the building up of one another. Which then in turn builds up the kingdom. Which then builds up the congregation. So that we, we, we can have a, a, a whole, a, just an endless cycle of discipleship making. 
Brethren, if you need the help, ask for it. We, are, we have many people here willing to help you, willing to do all we can to bring glory and honor to God by living our lives as bond slaves for the kingdom. So come forward if you need the prayers of the church. But who here is this morning who's not a child of God? Haven't been baptized for the remission of your sins, which means you're outside of Christ. So if you were to die today or tomorrow, you, are, you will fall in condemnation. Why? Because you have not yet had your sins washed away. You haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit. God hasn't added you to the church, the kingdom of God. So brethren, you could change all that today by coming forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.